Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening. You're listening to another episode of Bright Lights, Consumer Trends in Conversation with Element 54. I'm your host, Julianne Ng. In today's episode of Food Futures, where we look at food trends from the perspective of different industry experts, I have the privilege of speaking with cultural anthropologist Ellen Karp. Ellen was formerly with the National Museum in Ottawa and discovered many years ago that she had an uncanny ability to understand, predict, and interpret shifts in consumer thinking and behavior, and to translate them to deeply resonant strategies for the global marketplace. Her company, Anerka International, has been consulting and conducting high-level projects for many of the major food brands in Europe, Canada, and the U.S., in addition to work in most other consumer categories. She has written several books and articles, was the North American director of a Paris-based sociocultural trends think tank called SocioVision, and is a director of the Institute for Women's Policy Research in Washington. She has a personal and professional interest in sustainability and during COVID tried to plant a native garden. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Thanks. And you know what I realized that we should maybe add is that I do live in Toronto. I am Canadian. You'll hear me talk about the U.S. I do a lot of work in the U.S., but I am very much a Canadian. So Ellen, can you take us back to the past and to try to understand why we are seeing the trends that we are seeing in food today? Absolutely. From about 2000 to 2000 to, to 2010, actually, uh, was such an amazing decade in terms of shifts in attitudes and behaviors. And it was almost like the perfect storm of things that were happening to lead to this huge paradigm shift. I mean, I don't use the word paradigm shift lightly, uh, but this was a true paradigm shift. Things were never the same after those years. So what happened? Well, you had, uh, you remember Enron just before the turn of the century and uh, weapons of mass destruction, etc. Things like that really eroded uh, people's trust in the big institutions that they'd always relied on, be they banks, be they government, etc. And in fact, as an aside, Gallup does a poll, I think they're still doing it, called Trust in Big Institutions. It's worth checking out. And you can see how dramatically, if you look at over the years, how dramatically trust is eroded. It's, a, it's really amazing. So there was the trust factor. So little, little, little voice in brain says, leading, of course, to the need for transparency that we're experiencing now. Uh, but in addition, all of the big magazines like Time and Newsweek, etc., had kids on their cover very frequently, and it would talk about um, the rise in childhood ADHD, autism, allergies, obesity, etc., etc., etc. And the point that was made in many of these articles was that this can possibly be linked to the food supply. So when it affects your kids or your future kids people tend to pay attention. So this fear factor started to build. And we were reading also about so-called super germs and super diseases. So I don't even have to talk about that one in this day and age, but that was also adding to the fear. And then to make matters worse, uh, there was a, a period of a couple of years where there were actual deaths in the US from people eating uh, vegetables caused by E. coli. But again, what did all of this do? 
um, well, it eroded faith in, in the food supply, as in many other things. Um, and then at the same time, in 2007 or so, Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth, was being heavily promoted. And that really started to bring about a change in the way people thought about what they were eating. I call it the boogeyman. I'm being very gender because boogie person, I don't know, I think people would know what I'm talking about, but the boogeyman in the kitchen. So people around about 2008, 9, 10, people were no longer trusting what was in their kitchen. And the ultimate, the ultimate, if they turned it into a nightmare, said to them, this could mean your death. So it's profound fear like that. I mean, those of, those, those of us in marketing don't like to admit the role that fear can play, but fear can play a big role. And in this case, it brought about the transition of an entire industry. So once people started worrying about uh, the, the integrity of the food that they were eating, there became this kind of belief that in the early days, in the old days, in the pre-industrial period, food was cleaner. It was farmed mm -hmm. in a cleaner way. The earth was healthy, and therefore the food that resulted was healthy. The way things were manufactured, food was food products were manufactured was thought to be healthier. So that's why we started to see uh, references in ads everywhere about heritage of food companies, about authenticity. Uh, people started looking at ingredients lists, which has had a huge effect. If they saw anything, as you know, anything that looked chemical, they say, no, it's out. I don't want that. The two to three ingredients. Ingredients became a really, really big deal. Uh, so that's basically what happened then. And that set the stage for the evolution of the food industry uh, for many years to come. And we're still living it, but it's changing. That's a great summary, um, Ellen, of the background that has led to where we are today in terms of the need for greater transparency and that erosion of trust. So what is your perspective on how this relates to sustainability? Um, and when we talk about sustainability, actually, if we backtrack for a moment, we've done a lot of studies recently on that topic, and we see that there's still a lot of consumer confusion as to even what sustainability means like how do you define it and how does what you just described in terms of the past relate to it in the most classic sense uh, well that's a really good question and i agree with you completely people are so confused uh because uh this is an aside but very few of these terms have been standardized really so that even even as you know from doing studies the the uh the about 10 years ago, the words natural and organic lost their meaning almost because people didn't really understand them. And they were being, the word natural was being used uh, very, it was ubiquitous. Um, and you saw it everywhere. And, and with the sense of mistrust people had, that was not good. My advice to all industries is to try to simplify and standardize the language so that every everybody's on the same page and so that all consumers not those who are heavily into sustainability can understand so when you asked what it what it means to me generally sustainability has three components one is the environmental impact and often when we think of sustainability in general we think about the environmental impact 
basically our relationship with nature. Sustainability also means the impact on us as individuals and us and our families, and that usually references health. So the impact on our health, and that again has to do with toxicity in the body. And the third element is uh, what we could call the social impact or the effect on people who are not living where we live. They might be producing, producing the food, growing, manufacturing, or they might live in an area where the food is being produced. So the, there are those three elements. And basically what they, what they speak to is our relationship with our own health, our relationship with nature and our relationship with other people. Um, people who might live very far from where we live and are impacted uh, by what we do. Uh, of these three elements, with different product categories, some might be more important than others. So in some areas, like in apparel, for example, the social piece, the effect on people, on, on workers, on textile workers uh, in the developing world is, is very important to those who pay attention to apparel. In North America, as it turns out, and particularly with food, however, the focus of the mainstream consumer has been on how does this affect me and my family? Another thing that, that has happened uh, over the past few years that's really, really important is that when I started working in this area uh, in the heavily in the mid-2000s, the, the pundits at the time were saying that a preoccupation with health and sustainability was really for a niche audience. Uh, who are leaders in this area, and, and they put it at about 17 or 18% of the population. And, and my feeling after doing a lot of research was that it was going to go mainstream, and in fact, it has gone mainstream, and they've changed their tune. However, what remains is that there is a vanguard of people who are, who you could call leaders, who are very, very into all aspects of health and sustainability and they research it and they live it and and so they are the people who are really paying attention to the impact of their choices on the environment on other people so they're really into uh, fair trade as are many they're buying local they're taking into account things like transportation uh they're they're much more fully into it for the mainstream consumer, however, and this really, really is a mainstream story, uh, the focus is largely on food and on health maintenance has been. Now we're going to start seeing some changes. So that's a perfect uh, segue into the uh, my next question, which is the now we're going to start seeing some changes. Can you tell us about what is that transition and what's happening now? I think that we're having a little bit of a mini paradigm shift, and this will call to mind the research that you that you did, or we're we're moving towards. I call this a transition period, and there's two aspects of it. Uh, the first is a transition to a plant based diet, and so I'm going to get into that. The second is a transition to what is called, and I'm sure many have heard this term, conscious consumption. 
so in other words, we're starting to see the mainstream food consumer thinking and behaving a little bit more like these leaders, this niche audience that's in the vanguard. Uh, so let me take it back. Before we do, though, I have a little bit of data from one of my studies, and I'm allowed to share this uh, very generously. My client is permitting me to share this, but in, in a survey, uh, we named a number of product categories, including food, and said, are you extremely concerned, very concerned, somewhat, a little, not at all concerned about harmful substances in these types of products? And this was in 2017. And, and globally, it was a global study, 60% of people said that they were extremely or very concerned about harmful substances in the food that they were eating. Fear was actually high everywhere. In the, in the production countries like India and China, we consistently see that the fears there are much greater. And as a result, the sustainable behaviors are, are more entrenched. Uh, but we also see in North America, one in two people said that they were extremely or very concerned about harmful substances in their food supply. And much higher, again, among parents, particularly parents of young children, and higher among millennials and younger consumers. Uh, so let's talk about the results of your survey, which I found absolutely fascinating. Uh, you asked people if before COVID, they were regularly or occasionally reducing their meat consumption or uh, e eating uh, eating according to a vegetarian or a vegan lifestyle. And the numbers were really high when you really think about it. For the meat reduction, which again is indicative of a conversion to a plant-based diet, 30%, uh, you can say these numbers better than I can, but 30% said, I have already reduced my meat intake. And another 20% said, of, of everybody else said, I've either tried it during COVID or I intend to try it. So that makes 50%. One in two Canadians are talking about meat reduction. That's huge. Uh, in terms of vegetarianism, veganism, that of course is a little more selective, but there I think your numbers added up to 22% who either are currently vegetarian or vegan have tried it during COVID or intending to try it. That's one in five people. If you think about all the people you know, one out of every five is moving in this direction. So, so we're really looking at this shift to a, a plant-based diet. And that is so radically different from what came before that, that that's why I say we're transitioning to what I feel is in the future, another paradigm shift in this direction. Uh, why did this happen? Uh, COVID has accelerated it for sure, as your numbers show, and I'm going to talk about the effect of COVID in a second, but there was also a confluence of factors. So if you think about the period before COVID, uh, and you think about the food products that you can find in mainstream stores, 
there was a lot going on. First of all, it was the availability was there. You you see now way more products and better products than you ever did. Beyond Meat was so heavily promoted, but people were it was a big big buzz and it was being sold within a lot of the fast food chains. We had already had Meatless Mondays if you remember. So already uh before COVID uh, a plant-based diet was being heavily talked about and it was out there. And of course, the involvement of the younger generation was was higher than than the general population. So I have so a question um, for you about the plant-based diet. Based on the um, underlying drivers that you could um, source it back to, do you see it more being driven by the animal consciousness side of the equation or the health or sustainability side? Well, that is a really good question. And that uh, brings us to the the other side of this transition. I said one, one half was a transition to a plant-based diet or it doesn't necessarily mean mean being a vegetarian or a vegan but it does mean cutting back on the meat uh and the other side was conscious consumption so what does conscious consumption mean it means that when you buy something you're conscious of its impact on all those aspects of sustainability so in the past i would have said that the mainstream consumer was really motivated by personal health and familial health. So it was still in this, what is its, its effect on me, my health and my longevity? And it's still that. But if you were to ask me about the future, I think that the gap between the, these people that I described who are in the vanguard of health and sustainability, of sustainable living uh, is, is, is it's shortening and it's getting smaller. I still think that there's now a big difference. But if you ask me to predict the future, I think that conscious consumption is going to be entrenched in the uh, in the mainstream audience in many people. So Ellen, you mentioned that you believe that COVID has actually accelerated some of the trends that we are seeing now. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that, please? What I'm seeing is that COVID is making people aware of how fragile we really are and how fragile the planet is, but particularly how fragile we are. Uh, I think some people might have had this sense, but COVID has brought it home. Uh, it, there's also a kind of heightened sense of causality. So. People that don't usually think about that relationship between people and and the planet Earth are starting to think about it because you can't avoid thinking about that kind of causality in the age of COVID. And people are also, it seems, starting to recognize that in a world where toxicity can be so systemic, balance is really needed. We've been hearing people talk about balance forever but now it's all starting to come together. So um, in a way, I think your, your findings 
were symptomatic of this, but in, in July, Boston Consulting Group actually reported on a study they did that kind of confirms this, kind of confirms the fact that people are starting to increasingly link what happens to people and what happens to the planet. So, so according to the Boston Consulting Group, a huge proportion, 70% globally, um, are, are aware, say they're more aware than they used to be of that link. And something that's really interesting is that, that surprising to me actually, is that three quarters of people consider environmental issues to be as important or more as, as concerning or more concerning than health issues. So again, there's that, there's that link. And again, this is being driven by, as you found in your survey, the 25 to 44 year olds. So what do you think this means for the future? Well, in the future, uh, I've already mentioned that I think that the gap between those in the vanguard, the niche audience of people who are really, really living according to to um, health concerns, uh, environmental concerns, and social concerns, social justice concerns, uh, the gap between that and the mainstream consumer is is going to be shrinking, and that the the move to a plant based diet will continue there's there's another aspect to this that i wanted to mention and i'm going to credit my client uh for a huge survey that i did in 2017 about sustainability and climate change and uh my client was ocotex the major certifier of textiles they certify that textiles are safe from toxic chemical from from safe from toxic materials environmentally uh, sound and socially sound. And they've given me permission to share the findings. Something that interests me was do people associate their uh, accumulation of consumer goods with increased sustainability sustainability issues, climate change. Uh, And indeed, the, the results of that survey suggested clearly that people do associate the two and that people felt that reducing the amount that they purchased would, in fact, help to combat climate change. Millennials were ahead in this. Uh, the, the survey focused eventually on textiles. And four in 10 people, but particularly millennials, said in the future, I would like to have fewer but better quality clothing. So. I think that this is part of where we're headed to the future in terms of as our millennials being a little more selective in what we buy, looking at, at the amounts and maybe opting for quality instead of quantity as has been the Nate that is, as has been what we've been doing in North America for a few years. And I think COVID plays a role here too, even though COVID came after the survey because, you know, a lot of us have been looking over our stuff, trying to work our way through it. And, and I hear a lot of people questioning, do I really need all this stuff? So I call that deconsumption, consuming less. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I even think back to the early days when um, the, the lockdowns and the quarantines were happening, there wasn't a lot for people to do other than to really focus more inwards in their homes and declutter. So people would spend time cleaning out their closets and it does raise 
that awareness around like, do I really need all this stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people are now starting to understand the price that's being paid for all that stuff and that it's uh, broader than health and toxicity and what we put in our body that is still the driver of everything, but that, it, that there's a big environmental price to pay and there's a social price to pay as well. Certainly in the case of textiles, if you recall uh, Rana Plaza uh, in Bangladesh that collapsed after a fire in 2015 with great loss of life, that kind of shocked people into understanding the social piece. and. It, there's less awareness of that around around food, but I think it's all coming. It's all coming to roost. So thank you, Ellen, for all your insights about the past, which led to the present and what you see for the future. What does a company do then, or what does a marketer do in light of all of this information and, and, and the underlying drivers? Well, that's a good question. and and. I guess the way that I would answer it, some of this is going to be pretty familiar, but I'll just say it's even more important. So for example, now when you talk about sustainability, think about all, well, increasingly over the next few years, thinking, think increasingly about sustainability in all its dimensions. Uh, so so um, that's one thing that will shift more than ever, it's important for a company to figure out what their values are and communicate their values and talk about the actual concrete steps that you've taken to get there. I shouldn't even, and I don't have to say, you have to really be fully, fully transparent. And this, this to me is the really big one. In being transparent, anything you communicate, in fact, you have to do it in, in a way that rings true. You know, we've heard of greenwashing. Now there's all kinds of washing that people talk about. So washings is what, washing is when you try to divert attention from what you're really doing um, or making claim to be sustainable when you're really not. And you cannot do that. People are looking, especially millennials are looking. So you can't contradict yourself in any way. So I'm, because because people will judge you now so um people notice you cannot fool the people anymore it comes back that kind of thing comes back to haunt you another thing that i would say is um consumers are busy very busy usually even in covid being torn in many different directions and sustainability is hard. It's hard to know how to live a sustainable lifestyle. And even the people who are really into it feel this way. So, and, and mainstream consumers tend to look to brands for guidance. So make it easy for them, teach them, uh, and, and help them do the right thing. When I did this huge sustainability study, people were able to write in comments and they did galore. And they kept saying, I want to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing. I'm not sure how. So uh, so I think that's another really important element. Something else, too, is that if people start moving towards less is more and heightened quality, in many areas, we don't even know anymore how to judge quality. So it's a good thing to help them. That certainly applies to the 
to the textile industry, um, but we're not talking about that. Food, people kind of know quality, but people will need help with that. And incidentally, uh, in terms of, of millennials, the millennial population are looking for health and quality and convenience. So that is something that I know food producers have been struggling with um, for a long time. And uh, there are inroads being made, but that can be a really good area of concentration. There are, are a lot of things that companies can think about in terms of millennials and other younger consumers, but I believe we're going to leave that for the next podcast. Great. Thank you so much for your time today, Ellen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you are interested in hearing more about food trends from different experts and other upcoming consumer trends topics, please make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to Bright Lights Consumer Trends in Conversation with Element 54. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode or know someone else who would, we would love to hear from you. Please just reach out to me through LinkedIn or at julianne.ng at element-54.com.